Roxo Media House. A Signal 51 is police code for an investigation, a law enforcement proceeding that is a systemic and thorough attempt to learn the facts about a possible crime that is complex and whose facts and circumstances are generally hidden, at least initially, behind obstacles that can be coincidental and or man-made. Investigations methods are formal. I'm John Henry, a journalist, and my partner is Jake White, a retired Fort Worth police sergeant. Together, we examine the difficult cases of law enforcement, both in Fort Worth and around the region. This is Signal 51. The show is designed specifically for a more mature audience. Some of the content is graphic and is not intended for younger audiences. Episode 14 of the Signal 51 Chronicles. Part 2 of Vanished in Broad Daylight. On January 30th, 2004, Laura Lee Crane, a notable local educator who taught at TCU, left her home on Bel Air Drive in West Fort Worth in the late morning hours. She visited her friend near her home with plans to go to the grocery store. She never came home. Laura Lee Crane had vanished in broad daylight. A break in the case came two days later when her 1999 Nissan Sentra was located in Oklahoma City. 180 miles or so north of Fort Worth, with Edward Busby and Kathleen Latimer inside. Officers questioned the two and brought them in for questioning. That's where we pick up the story. Busby offered officers three reasons, all different of course, why he was driving Crane's car. In the late afternoon hours of February 1st, two days after Crane's disappearance, Fort Worth detectives traveled to Oklahoma City to do their interviews of the two persons of interest. On the way, one Fort Worth homicide detective spoke with an FBI agent who interviewed Busby that afternoon. Busby told the agent that he purchased the car for $200 from a man known only as quote-unquote JD. Busby had told the agent that he needed the car to get out of town and before he left with his girlfriend, he checked the trunk and did not find anything. The latter part, checking the trunk and not finding anything, was highlighted by both news reports and police documents. The next day, February 2nd, Fort Worth homicide detectives met with Latimer. She provided a bit different story. Latimer told detectives that Busby and JD took a woman's car from a parking lot in West Fort Worth. Detectives then met with Busby who said that yes, JD did take the woman's car and he also killed her, JD that is, but Busby did not see the body in the car. The next day, February 3rd, detectives met with Busby again. This time, Busby said J.D. told him he killed a woman and that J.D. wanted $1,300 for the car she was driving. Busby did not have $1,300. So in exchange, Busby said he agreed to dump the body. That body was Laura Lee Crane. Busby agreed to take detectives to the location where they could find Laura's body. Edward Busby led investigators to an overgrown, steep embankment 50 miles north of the Texas border in Murray County, Oklahoma. The location was Interstate 35 near Highway 77. Across the highway, Turner Falls Park, up the road was a YMCA children's camp. It was here investigators discovered the deceased body of Laura Lee Crane. Crane was wrapped in a white sheet and her face covered with duct tape. The Oklahoma medical examiner arrived and pronounced Laura Lee Crane deceased. This is where the truth began to flow. What police did not know, 
There were two people at the same store in the late morning hours of January 30th, 2004. They were there for ill-gotten gains. Edward Busby and Kathleen Latimer went to the store, not to buy groceries, but to steal beer. The two were driven to the store by an unknown man. Once having arrived, Busby entered the store with the intent of swiping beer. Latimer and the unidentified man stayed in the car. At some point, Latimer and the unidentified man began to argue. Latimer either voluntarily exited the car or she was forced from the car. But regardless, their getaway vehicle had left the premises. Heading where, no one knew, but the car was no longer an option. Without a mode of transportation, Latimer entered the store to tell Busby about the turn of events. Busby and Latimer left the store and looked for a way to get back to their motel room in East Fort Worth. It was then that they saw the 77-year-old crane in the parking lot. Her car, they decided at once, was their method of escape. You see, people like Busby and Latimer, they are simply put predators. Their prey was a defenseless 77-year-old woman. According to news reports, Crane was sitting in her car with the door open and looking down as if she had dropped something. Busby walked up and said, quote, Ma'am, just scoot over. All I want is a ride. Nothing is going to happen to you. Busby sat in the driver's seat and Latimer in the back. The three left the grocery store parking lot. Latimer rifled through Crane's purse and found $12 in her ATM card. Latimer asked for the PIN codes, which Crane provided. On the way out of Fort Worth, the abductors, with their victim, stopped at a store somewhere on or near Beach Street. Latimer came out a few minutes later and said the ATM PIN code was incorrect. Reports stated that Latimer then struck Crane in the head. The three continued north to Oklahoma. Where were they going? Initially, the two planned to drive to Amarillo. During the trial, we received clues as to why the two had considered Amarillo as a destination. Busby had an inglorious past there. According to trial testimony, an Amarillo police officer testified that Busby sold them rocks. Crack rocks, right? No, literally rocks. Instead of crack cocaine, Busby sold the officer literal rocks. Now, Jake, uh, you were a narcotics and an undercover officer with, with the Fort Worth Police Department. Have you ever encountered someone trying to sell you rocks? So during this time, crack cocaine was far, far more common than what it is today. Does it exist still? Sure. Uh, but not at the level that it did in 2004 and beyond and shortly thereafter. The exact scenario that this Amarillo officer testified to is a scenario that I've been a part of multiple times, oh, especially. Do tell. The, well, not uncommon is what, what I'll say. <laughs> it's not uncommon or it was not uncommon to pull up to the corner, to the store, wherever you suspected the crack cocaine was to be or was being sold. And you have the suspected dealer come up to you and you tell them that you needed in Fort Worth. We, they called it hard. The, all the people on the streets knew that that meant crack cocaine and you'd ask for 20 hard or a 20 rock or a 20 piece, something to that effect, whatever. It all had the same meaning. They all knew what it was. And from time to time, they would walk off. They would come back to your car and hand you pebbles, literally pebbles. Um, you would look at it. Keep in mind, it's a criminal offense. Well, I was going to ask, is it actually a criminal yeah, offense a, if you sell, if, 
You ask for crack cocaine, and instead you get It's pebbles. a simulated controlled substance. Now, right. what happened with those cases prosecution-wise, I don't know. I mean, we would they go to jail? Yes. Um, the, the rocks were common. I did witness on one occasion a guy literally walk up and sell a small piece of a styrofoam cup balled up in a small ball or what looked like a small rock. So not surprised by the, the testimony, uh, certainly not surprised by the testimony considering the era, if you will. Uh, it was common back then. Have you, have you ever seen anybody uh, try to smoke a pebble rock? No, it's obvious. Like you immediately well, know. obvious to you. Well, but, but, but <laughs> even mean, more obvious to one who consumes crack cocaine. But what are your what are your options? You can confront them. You're probably outnumbered. It's certainly going to result in some kind of physical confrontation. Yeah. So I think it depends on the purchaser and the seller. Their for relationship, I, perhaps, or something. Like the that relationship, for all I know, I mean. There, there could have been, I, I'm certain there were assaults behind selling the simulated controlled substance. I'm certain, or I'm not certain, but I think it's possible that we've had people murdered for selling a simulated controlled um, substance. Probably. So, not uncommon. All right. Well, back to our story. Instead of Amarillo, they ended up in Ardmore, Oklahoma. In the parking lot of a La Quinta Inn, Latimer told Busby to put more duct tape on Crane's head. But they were out of duct tape, so Busby drove to a local store with Crane still in the trunk and purchased more tape. After securing more tape and wrapping Crane's head with even more, the two left her in the trunk and went to find drugs. They ate at a Taco Cabana and returned to the motel room for a night of drinking. Hey, real quick, one thing that also came up with this was keep in mind they're not in a city that they're familiar with they had actually asked a hotel clerk where i believe they used the term either hood is what i believe the term was that they asked the clerk for where's the hood where's the hood so with the intent of buying dope but they struck out and that's one of the other things they're, again they're in a, a, a foreign city to them and you know these some of these drug dealers i mean you need to be either on a first name basis with them or they recognize you or you have somebody there that can vouch for them so i think in in our research of this like i said they their intent was to go buy drugs they struck out so they bought the booze the next morning busby and latimer intended on hitchhiking to oklahoma city the car they planned on leaving on the side of the road with crane's body in the trunk however when they opened the trunk before leaving, they found that Crane had died. Some more details that came out was that along the way out of Fort Worth, Busby and Latimer had made multiple stops. At one stop in particular, Latimer bought a few drinks and a roll of duct tape. Busby stated that Latimer wanted him to tape Crane's legs and hands, but he instead taped her mouth and eyes. This, however, did not stop Crane from kicking while she was in the trunk of the car. Latimer ordered Busby to pull over and open the trunk. Busby, reluctant to do so, did comply when Latimer burned him with a cigarette. After pulling over a second time, it was then Busby followed Latimer's direction and taped the legs and hands of Crane. Busby wrapped almost 26 feet of duct tape around Crane's arms and legs. 
Some other disturbing information. News reports of the trial stated the duo had stopped at a store to buy a rap CD. Once back in the car, the CD was played and the bass was on high. The reason? Latimer instructed Busby to turn up the bass so she could not hear the sounds of Crane screaming and kicking in the trunk. When Busby and Latimer were ultimately arrested, the CD, Beg for Mercy, was found in the car. When police discovered the body of Laura Lee Crane, they found her face had been wrapped in 14 layers of duct tape, consisting of almost 36 feet. Once her face was wrapped, Jeffrey Gofton, an Oklahoma medical examiner, testified that it took Crane less than one minute to die in the trunk of her car. The amount of duct tape left no airway for her to breathe, according to the medical examiner. Ultimately, Busby and Latimer were both arrested and returned to Fort Worth. The district attorney charged the pair with capital murder. Jake, let's talk about Oscar's Pub for a second. The home base for so many good people on the west side of Fort Worth, the birthplace of the Signal 51 Chronicles. Wasn't far from where we're, where we're sitting that Jake and I made our vows. Wait, what, 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 no, where? Where we hold on, where we fashioned the idea of what would become the Signal 51 Chronicles. And it's here, Jake, at Oscar's Pub, that you can drink the tastiest beverages with the friendliest people. Be nice or go home. That's that's the motto of Oscar's Pub. And that is Oscar's Pub, a true friend to the Signal 51 Chronicles. Located at 6323 Camp Bowie. So let's bring in our resident attorney, Sean Furkey. Sean, we're talking about murder, capital murder in this case. What's the difference in capital murder and murder? So, Jake, in Texas, the biggest difference between murder and capital murder can be summed up in two words, and that's death penalty. Um, Capital murder is punishable by life in prison without parole or the death penalty. Murder, on the other hand, is punishable by up to life in prison with the possibility for parole. Okay, now a follow-up. There's also quite a bit of confusion about the hierarchy of murder charges. You hear in a lot of states, not to mention Hollywood productions, the terms first-degree murder, second-degree murder, and third-degree murder. We don't have that in Texas. Here, we have capital murder, murder, manslaughter, and criminally negligent homicide. Sean, what's the difference? What differences and what distinguishes those charges? So in Texas, under the Texas Penal Code, uh, you know, homicide, which all four of those fall under, it's obviously a felony crime defined as intentionally, knowingly, or recklessly causing the death of an individual. Um, and then criminal homicide is a broad term used to define the four different subsets that you just mentioned, murder, capital murder, manslaughter, and criminal, criminally negligent homicide. The differences between each classification depends on the nature and the intention of the accused crime. So, for example, um, in in Texas, uh, murder is committed when a person intentionally or knowingly causes the death of another person. You can also be charged with murder if you cause the death of another person during an attempt to inflict serious bodily injury or commit another felony. In capital murder... In capital murder in Texas, uh, a homicide will be charged as capital murder if 
the victim was a law officer or a fireman on duty if the individual that was killed is under the age of 10 or if the death occurred during the commission or attempted commission of kidnapping, robbery, burglary, arson, aggravated sexual assault, retaliation, obstruction, or during a terroristic threat. Um, so obviously in this case, since Ms. Crane's death was committed during the commission of another felony, in this case kidnapping, that's why these defendants were charged with capital murder. Uh, going on with the other, two other subsets, manslaughter, um, the difference between murder and manslaughter is that manslaughter occurs when you cause the death of an individual as the result of your reckless disregard for human life. Um, and then manslaughter can be separated into two classifications, involuntary manslaughter, which is negligently causing the death of another person without the intent to kill, and voluntary manslaughter, which is intentionally killing another person in the heat of the moment. Lastly, criminally negligent homicide, person is charged with that if they cause the death of an, of an individual by criminal negligence example that would be reckless driving okay so that's where I get, we could get off on the other topic of culpable mental states but we're not going to do that for this show so uh okay well that's that's definitely good and informative information on november 17 2005 edward busby was sentenced to death for capital murder in a jailhouse interview, Busby said he prayed with Crane before wrapping her head in duct tape and forcing her in the trunk of the car. He said, quote, I just want everyone to know that it wasn't my intention for that lady to die. I made it where she could breathe. I fell asleep. I don't know what happened. I was up for two days smoking crack. Why would Busby do the things Latimer asked? Quote, when Kathleen asked me to do something, I'd do it. I don't ask why, I just do it. That's how much I love her. Almost two years later, on February 6, 2006, Latimer pleaded guilty and was sentenced to life in prison for murder. In an interview with Laura Blackwell Simmons of Fort Worth Magazine, Latimer said she had, quote, a lot, end quote, of responsibility for her role in the death of Laura Crane. So could this have had a different outcome? I did speak with a source with intimate knowledge who was involved in the search for Laura Crane. And in that conversation, the source said there was some frustration about the information being collected, specifically information not being collected or not quick, uh, collected quickly enough or not shared soon enough. Like what, like what information exactly? We had credit card use store surveillance video and ATM videos. The source I spoke with stated they believed the video from the grocery store was not collected until the day after she was missing. If the video showed the abduction, it's likely the search would have been enhanced or at least refocused. Fact or fiction, I can't say for certain, but also the source I spoke with vividly remembered the feeling of frustration about the video. The other piece of information that seemed slow was disseminating or acting on the credit card information and the ATM video. Okay, let's hold on right there one second. So, how does something like that fall through the cracks? I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of answers on that, but is that ultimately a, a leadership? Well, it's not necessarily case at the scene of. The, of no, it, it's up to the. I think one thing that's important to remember is 
there's only a handful of detectives that are working this. And on something like this, they're busy. I'm not saying that, again, this was the feeling of somebody involved in the search party. This was not necessarily somebody involved in the detailed steps of the investigation. So the investigator has to make a decision of get this out quickly or this can wait. And maybe, and that's possibly what it was. I don't know. There was certainly under no circumstances, you know, any ill intent or any right. specific reason why I think it was these, these are frustrating. I mean, like any missing person case, it's a needle in a haystack mm -hmm. or more. Yeah. And so it is frustrating to try to, you're driving around and it feels like you're driving around aimlessly. Maybe you're searching a field. In this case, they were searching around her house, around the store. I'm literally on foot looking for her and nothing. I am in the odds of finding someone is quite low as well. Well, and, and, the, and the proliferation of cameras and videos isn't what it is today either. So no, there might not have been an assumption that there was video like there would be today. No, that, well, that, that's exactly right. And I think, you know, with this one, though, ultimately, the apprehension of Busby and Latimer in 2004 was the result of a hardworking beat cop in Oklahoma City, Officer Padgett, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. a cop who seemingly acted on his instincts. But like you said, if we look at this, if we look at this disappearance and murder today, the result may have been a bit different. As we have mentioned in other episodes, crime fighting technology has made significant advancements in the past 20 years. If this case were to happen today, two things would have happened and happened quickly. First, the license plate for Laura's car would have been inputted into a system of cameras that read license plate numbers. Okay, now that that sounds that sounds uh, uh, very very futuristic. What what is that technology? Um, first of all, that question. But do we have it in Fort Worth? Is it widespread across the city, or what? What is this exactly? It's emerging technologies. For example, there's a company called Insight LPR. They sell purpose-built license plate reading cameras. License plate recognition technology is what it is. Many agencies, local, county, or state, have these cameras on the highways and city streets. When a car that is entered into the system passes one of these cameras, then all of the cops who have the alerts set up are notified within seconds. So in this case, let's assume they had inside LPR cameras set up on I-35 just north of downtown Fort Worth. When Laura's car passed the camera, an alert would have been sent out almost immediately. It would say something to the effect of a missing vehicle, a missing person, possible kidnapping, vehicle, etc. The moment that alert goes off, you would have every cop who could get to the car quickly heading that way. With the results that, that agencies are seeing, with the success stories that they're having with this emerging technology, many agencies are turning to it. Next, if there was any hint of foul play, the police department has the ability to start tracking a cell phone under exigent circumstances. While this may not pinpoint to an exact location, it would certainly leave a breadcrumb trail of alerts showing the phone is traveling north. And here we are 18 years later. The case is still being dragged out in the sense that Busby has yet to be put to death. And he may never be put to death. He's had a stay of execution based on an intellectual disability. So yeah, that's correct. In 2021, Busby dodged his date with the executioner 
with help by the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals, who granted a request by attorneys for Busby to stay his execution to allow him to pursue claims he has shown, quote, significant limitations in intellectual functioning. The U.S. Supreme Court in 2002 barred the execution of intellectually disabled people, but it has given states some discretion on how to decide how to determine such disabilities. So, Sean, let's talk about the death, death penalty, a death sentence. Who, when we look at it from a prosecution perspective, what prosecutors do we have trying these capital murder trials, the one where the death penalty could, in fact, be the punishment? So obviously you're going to have, you know, your most experienced prosecutors, uh, people that have been doing this for decades and decades that have worked their way up through the misdemeanor courts, through the felony courts. Most of the time probably have several hundred jury trials under their belt and have had a lot of experience in murder and capital murder cases. And on the other side, with respect to the defense lawyers, that are deemed qualified to defend someone charged with capital murder, um, there's certain qualifications that those people must have. They must have been, um, you know, licensed for a certain number of years. They must have, um, they have to, be, I guess, have at least five years of criminal law experience. Because you know, one thing to obviously remember a lot most of the time when someone's charged with capital murder, you know, they're indigent, meaning they obviously can't afford their own lawyers, so they're appointed an attorney. So. Lawyers that are on the appointment wheel that are qualified to, you know, represent capital cases, um, they've got at least five years of criminal law experience. Obviously, in most cases, much more than that. They've tried to a verdict as lead defense counsel at least eight felony cases, including homicide trials and other trials for offenses punishable as second or first degree felonies or capital felonies. And then they've got trial experience in the use of and challenges to mental health or forensic expert witnesses. Because a lot of times in these capital cases, as you've already touched on, um, a lot of times that is brought in as a mitigating factor for the defendant that they had a diminished capacity or a low IQ and didn't fully understand the crime they committed and thus, you know, should not be put to death by the state. Okay. So that, I, I guess another follow up on that, especially in regards to the, the defense side and the um, defense attorney being appointed to represent the defendant in, in any capital trial time-wise how much time do those defense teams and even the prosecution teams have involved in preparing those cases for trial so you know there each case is obviously unique depending on how much evidence how many witnesses there are how many interviews have been conducted but clearly if if the state is pursuing the death penalty in a capital case you know they're going to want to you know, that's reserved for the worst of the worst criminals, right? Um, and so they're going to make sure that they have spoken to everyone, that they have, you know, left no stone unturned, so to speak. So obviously those cases can can go on for years and years before they're ultimately resolved. And even, and in, I'm sure we've all heard about this and seen this in not only portrayed in movies, but just seen this in the national news and our local news, even if someone is convicted of capital murder, what a lot of people don't realize is, you know, it can take years and years. I mean, I'm talking over a decade, sometimes 20 years, as in this case, before that person is actually, you know, put to death because there's all sorts of appeals that are filed 
and it, it can it, it takes quite a long time before that actually happens if it ever does so in this case as an example uh busby there's been a at least one stay of execution perhaps possibly two uh, one of the things in the uh, 2002 Supreme Court decision, it talks about the um, significant limitations in intellectual functioning, legal terms, legalese, sure. lawyer stuff. What does that mean? So what that means is obviously the state, and there, you've seen this, this has been a, a hot topic last you know 20 years, the state doesn't want to put someone to death even if someone's convicted of a capital case you know there might be some mitigating evidence um you know with respect to your question if if the person had a low iq where they could not fully understand what they were doing um or diminished capacity you know where they didn't understand the ramifications of their actions you know the state might reserve you know they might rather go the route of putting that person in prison without the possibility of parole as opposed to putting the needle in their arm all right thanks for clearing that up for us no matter what or how busby's punishment is carried out the tragedy of laura lee crane left her family and friends devastated and left the fort worth community wrestling with an issue that has perplexed societies for thousands of years crime and punishment Sean, thank you much for your invaluable input. And Jake, fist bump. Fist bump. Until next time, goodbye. Roxo Media House.